Are you in college? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2024. This unique and exciting study abroad program offers you the opportunity to spend a semester in Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll study the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome, live with like-minded young men and women steps from the Colosseum, and participate in weekly cultural and intellectual events, regular day trips, and multi-day excursions. To learn more about this life-changing opportunity, go to ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. That's ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. My name is Paul Gondreau. I am a professor of theology at Providence College in Rhode Island. And among the courses that I teach, one is a colloquium on Tolkien. And the focus is on the Catholic dimension of Tolkien's work, especially The Lord of the Rings, because by his own admission, this is in a letter to a Jesuit priest, he says, The Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. Okay, Uh, this is becoming um, more or less well-known. That is that Tolkien himself was a devout Christian, Catholic believer. And in another letter, Tolkien adds that he, quote, intended the Lord of the Rings to be consonant with Christian thought and belief. And that the Lord of the Rings is about God and his sole right to divine honor. Okay, what could he have meant by these remarks, especially since the term God, nor certainly Catholic, nowhere appear in the story? And these remarks have befuddled many scholars over the years. What, what, what could he have meant by calling the Lord of the Rings a Catholic work and a religious work? While not at all obvious, and I would suggest while all beneath the surface, the entire Catholic Christian worldview, I would argue, is present in the Lord of the Rings. All the essential elements of Catholic doctrine are found there. God and the Trinity are there. Christ is there. The Eucharist and all the sacraments are there. The Church is there. The Virgin Mary and the saints are there. The Catholic view of the human person is there, along with all essential elements of Catholic moral doctrine, sin, grace, divine providence, natural law, Virtue, both natural and theological. The Catholic view of the last things, the eschaton, is there. And so much of the Bible is there. I don't have time, obviously, to flesh all this out. Indeed, really, all I can do is scratch the surface. But what I propose to do with you is to explore how some of these things are present Uh, and some of the more salient structural themes that undergird the Lord of the Rings. So I'm going to walk you through what I would identify as some of the structural themes. But some provisos before I explore these structural themes. First, the expressly Christian or Catholic dimension 
of these themes might not have been consciously so on Tolkien's part. That's not how a Catholic imagination always works, and that is what we're talking about here, is a Catholic imagination, uh, an imagination formed, uh, among other things, by his, uh, by his Catholic faith, by his Christian faith. So it's not so much by conscious interpolation. His imagination, Tolkien's imagination, was formed by many factors. Certainly early 20th century rural England, Norse mythology, especially the Finnish tale, the Kalevala, Germanic languages, specifically Welsh, Finnish, and the remnants of 4th century Gothic, Tolkien says, his experience in the trenches of World War I, and so on. But at the top of the list, I would say, is his Catholic faith. Sometimes he might consciously draw upon his faith, but oftentimes elements of the faith probably came out in ways he wasn't necessarily aware of. Biblical imagery is present all throughout the Lord of the Rings. If for no other reason than Tolkien's mind was so saturated with biblical images, personages, events, that they inevitably colored and helped shape many of the images, personages, and events that he created. The biblical notion of kingship, for instance, was so stamped on Tolkien's mind and imagination that he couldn't but bear traces of it. He couldn't but have it in mind, both consciously and subconsciously, when creating the kingship of Aragorn or the stewardship of Lord Denethor. I see all kinds of parallels between Lord Denethor and King Saul, the first king of Israel, as recounted in the first book of Samuel, for instance. Second, Tolkien expressed an avowed dislike for allegory, preferring instead what he called applicability and real history. He disliked allegory because he thought it gave the author too much power and control to impose the meaning of the story upon the reader. And just consider how inordinate power and control is at the heart of the story of the Lord of the Rings. Applicability, on the other hand, gave more freedom to the reader to see multivalent layers of meaning that are applicable to things that the author maybe did or did not necessarily intend or have in mind. So as to the Bible, such as to the Bible. So when identifying the Catholic elements of the Lord of the Rings, we must be careful to speak of echoes, resonances, parallels, resemblances, rather than of intentional allegories or symbolism. The Lord of the Rings is not the Chronicles of Narnia, where Aslan the Lion, of course, is an allegory for Christ. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis may have been good friends. In one letter, Tolkien acknowledged that the Lord of the Rings would never, quote, have been brought to a conclusion without Lewis's sheer encouragement, end quote. And Lewis's death in 1963 impacted Tolkien, quote, like an axe blow near the roots. But they did disagree strongly on the nature of myth-making, what today we call fantasy or science fiction. Tolkien called it fairy stories. You can find Tolkien's philosophy of myth-making or science fiction in his essay called On Fairy Stories, which I'd highly encourage you to read. At the end of this essay, Tolkien makes clear that he thinks all the great stories of Western literature, the great myths or fairy stories, think of Homer, Virgil, etc., insofar as they contain good and true elements, are but echoes, shadows of what he considers the supreme 
fairy story, which is the Christian story. This story, this is Tolkien here. This is the citation there for you. This story, that is the Christian story, is supreme. It is true. So it's the one myth, the one fairy story that's true because it actually happened. The Christian story is the supreme fairy story because it belongs not in the secondary world of make-believe, but in the primary world of man's history. That's Tolkien's language. The primary world of man's history. From this perspective, then, any fairy story that contains anything that is true and good, such as in Virgil, such as in Homer, could be considered a fundamentally Catholic work. Legend and history have met and fused, Tolkien asserts at the very end of this essay. The Evangelium, the Christian gospel, has not abrogated legends, it has hallowed them, especially the happy ending. In other words, God, knowing what echoes in the heart of the human person, what the human spirit yearns for, such as we see in the classics of Western literature, God makes all of this come true in the way that only God can, and we find that recounted in the Bible. Should we be surprised, then, that he considers his own fairy story of the Lord of the Rings as an echo of the Christian story along with all the other stories, especially since by his own admission, he infused the Lord of the Rings with most of the things he has most loved and hated, and that the Catholic faith nourished him and taught him all the little that he knew. So with those provisos out of the way, let's move to considering what is Catholic or Christian in the Lord of the Rings. So here let me suggest that the Catholic Christian vision of the Lord of the Rings can be appreciated at both a, uh, on a big scale, at the meta level, and on the down on the ground or micro level, <clears throat> small scale. So this talk shall remain for the most part on the larger meta level though concrete examples will be offered to put flesh and bones on what I'll be suggesting. So, spoiler alert, uh, I hope you've, uh, you've at least seen the movies. If not, hopefully you read the books. <laughs> okay, I'm going to be giving the story away otherwise. Uh, at the furthest meta level, say if we, you know, like zoomed out at the level of the, uh, you know, International Space Station looking down on the Earth, what we find in The Lord of the Rings is a presentation of good and evil, beauty and ugliness, nobility and indecency or wickedness, excellence of character, especially moral excellence, and corruption of character that is clearly born of and shaped by a Christian worldview. Tolkien's vision of beauty, truth, goodness, nobility, virtue, heroism, it's a Christian one. As a Christian, for instance, Tolkien knows what virtuous and good character, seen most especially in the saints, looks like. And so he presents to us numerous models of heroism who are paragons of virtue, of moral excellence, paragons of nobility, of bearing hardship, especially for others, of courage, of self-sacrificial love, of high purpose, of beauty, of self-possession, of measured self-control and prudential action. Consider the list of candidates. Aragorn, Frodo, Sam, Gandalf, Legolas, Gimli, Faramir, Theoden, Eomer, Galadriel, Eowyn, etc. And the list goes on. 
In this connection, one thing I ask my students at the conclusion of the course I teach on The Lord of the Rings is to pick their favorite character. The choices are always varied, but they're always from this list. We find ourselves drawn to so many of the great and noble characters because, as Tolkien well knows, we are at bottom wired for, drawn to goodness, beauty, truth, heroism, and love. Christian faith makes clear we are charged or wired by God for the good, for truth, for beauty. This explains why we are decidedly not drawn to evil and wickedness, to ugliness, to pride, to betrayal, to falsehood, to cowardice, or to hate. For which reason none of my students ever pick as their favorite character Gollum, or Sauron, or Saruman, or Grishnak the Orc, or Shelob, or the Witch King, or even the tragic figures of Denethor or Boromir. It is telling how in a letter Tolkien acknowledged that the Lord of the Rings recounts a story that can be, quote, cast in terms of a good side and a bad side. Beauty against ruthless ugliness, tyranny against kingship, moderated freedom with consent against compulsion, end quote. On the issue of ruthless ugliness and tyranny, we should note that as a Christian, Tolkien knows evil is real, that it exists, and that there are wicked spirits, demons, seeking our destruction. There is such a thing as malice and revenge, Gandalf says to Frodo in the Fellowship of the Ring. Indeed, there is. And the biblical witness makes clear that we find it in all free, that is, rational and moral creatures, both pure spirits, angels, and incarnate spirits, human beings. Tolkien believes in evil. He believes in the devil. That is, he believes in both human malice and in fallen angelic malice. And we should not be surprised to find something of the like in The Lord of the Rings. Okay, on then to various structural themes of The Lord of the Rings that I think flow from a thoroughly Catholic imagination. First is the Eucharist as a structural theme. The Eucharist, of course, is the bread consecrated by the priest during Mass, which is a reenactment of the Last Supper of Jesus with his apostles. In a letter to his son, Tolkien says this about the Eucharist. There, in the Eucharist, you will find romance, glory, honor, fidelity, and the true way of all your loves upon earth. Later, he confesses, how he fell in love with the Blessed Sacrament, the Eucharist, from the beginning, and by the mercy of God, never have fallen out again. He counseled his son Christopher, upon his being called up into the Royal Air Force to serve in the Second World War, to, quote, know by heart the canon of the Mass, as this would allow him to, quote, say this in your heart if ever hard circumstances should keep you from hearing Mass. We shouldn't be surprised then, to see echoes or likenesses of the Eucharist all throughout the Lord of the Rings. We see this most obviously in the case of Lembus, the elven waybread, which is, quote, more strengthening than any food made by men. That's stated in Farewell to Lorien and the Fellowship of the Ring. The Eucharist is, of course, our waybread. Viaticum, 
that's one of the, the Catholic terms for the Eucharist, viaticum. It's, it's what the Eucharist is called when it's administered on one's deathbed. It literally means way, way bread, way with, way with you. Okay, so it's, it's, it's our bread as, uh, for us as wayfarers in this life. In a letter, Tolkien affirms that Lembus has a, quote, religious significance above and beyond its relatively unimportant ability to give endurance of long marches with little provision, and that, this is key, no analysis in any laboratory would discover chemical properties of Lembus that made it superior to other cakes of whole meal, end quote. Okay, there's that. There's that passage there. Uh, listen, for any informed Catholic, this language of power beyond chemical analysis, this is clearly code for the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. Since a chemical analysis of the Eucharist would also show it to be identical to bread. And that's because a chemical analysis is only going to measure the accidents as the substance, the underlying reality, is beyond sense observation. Okay, we also see Eucharistic-like resonance in the table fellowship that is omnipresent in the story, particularly pronounced in those meals that satisfy deep longing because following upon intense combat with evil. And the deep longing that these meals satisfy is not simply that born of physical need for sustenance, but deeper social, that is, rational or spiritual need for the pleasure, the enjoyment, and the fellowship provided by meals. Only animals eat. They don't have meals. Only rational animals have meals. Meals bespeak our humanity at its most basic and at its most elevated levels. And it is this deeper human need for meals, the need for the satisfaction of human needs at multiple levels amidst a life of suffering and hardship that the Eucharist meets. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed, says Jesus in John's Gospel. So, examples of these uh, meals of fellowship. Uh, begins with a generous supper provided by Farmer Maggot and his wife of good food, a mighty dish of mushrooms and bacon, besides much other solid farmhouse fare. Good drink, beer in plenty. Thinking of the frat houses across the street, right? <laughs> and good conversation, fellowship. I don't know if that's happening over there, but, um, but that's what at the, the, the meal of Farmer Maggot. As Frodo, Sam, and Pippin make their way to Bree while being pursued by the Black Riders. It continues next with a wonderful meal at the house of Tom Bombadil, a long and merry meal after being rescued from Old Man Willow in the Old Forest. Then, while the hobbits make their way to Rivendell with Strider and discover that they are running low on food, it is Strider who tells the hobbits to, quote, think with hope of the tables of Elrond's house. And so this runs all the way through the story. And don't forget the stew that Sam made with the rabbits that Gollum had procured in the two towers, ending with the festal banquet of great rejoicing and merriment after Frodo and Sam's rescue from Mount Doom. So what Tolkien is showcasing here, I, I want to suggest, is more than simply a Eucharistic sensibility, but really a fuller Catholic incarnational or sacramental sensibility. Such a sensibility embraces and enjoys to the full the simplest and most ordinary of earthly goods, whether food, drink, a hot bath, a comfortable bed to sleep in, 
or even pipeweed, to choose examples from throughout the Lord of the Rings. Since in a sacramental lens on the world, these can occasion encounters with no one less than God himself. A sacramental imagination, particularly one that finds in the sacramental meal of the Eucharist, romance, glory, honor, fidelity, and the true way of all one's loves upon earth, that's Tolkien's language, might well account for the importance of meals and table fellowship in The Lord of the Rings. Okay, second structural theme, that of elevated or exalted womanhood. Tolkien presents us in The Lord of the Rings with several female figures. Think, for instance, of Lady Goldberry, Lady Gladriel, Lady Arwen, Lady Eowyn, who are among the very wise and powerful of Middle-earth and who stand toe-to-toe with their male counterparts, yet without losing their feminine identity. If we can speak of a feminism in Tolkien, we must be quick to distinguish it from secular feminism that would overspread Western culture half a century after the writing of The Lord of the Rings, a feminism that turns equality into sameness, and thus where there are no real differences between men and women, especially biological differences, as, you know, as we see happening today. It's more a feminism that Pope St. John Paul II spoke of, say, in his apostolic letter on the dignity of women, Mulieris Dignitatem. In Tolkien's world, women, if fundamentally equal to men, remain no less women, complementary to men in biology, in disposition, and in social function. So what accounts for his sense of elevated womanhood? Well, certainly, first and foremost, we can look to the fact that Tolkien enjoyed the presence of very strong, loving women in his own life. First, his mother, his, his uh, natural mother. Tolkien says she was a gifted lady of great beauty and wit who suffered persecution for her Catholic faith. Then his wife, Edith Bratt. But more remotely, his sense of exalted womanhood is accounted for by his Catholic faith, which holds up countless women as models of spiritual heroism and excellence. There is Mary and Martha of Bethany, Mary Magdalene in the New Testament, and then to choose only a few examples, Catherine of Siena, Prater of the Papacy, Doctor of the Church, Teresa of Avila, visionary, great reformer of the Carmelite Order, also Doctor of the Church, Therese of Lisieux, popular saint in the 20th century, doctor of the church. There's also Joan of Arc. Can we not see obvious parallel between Lady Eowyn, shield maiden of Rohan, and Joan of Arc? But most especially, of course, there is the Virgin Mary. Nothing has captured the Catholic imagination more than the beauty, the holiness, the power, the womanhood, the grace, the nobility of the Mother of God. Tolkien says that to the Virgin Mary, he owes, quote, all my own small perception of beauty, both in majesty and simplicity. As regards Lady Galadriel, Tolkien affirms that the Catholic devotion to Mary is at the source of her character, particularly as described through the words of Gimli and Sam. That's in the Fellowship of the Ring. And if we turn to Lady Eowyn, Beyond seeing a connection between her and Joan of Arc, do we not also see a parallel between her and her confrontation with the witch king and the Virgin Mary, who crushes the head of the serpent? A third structural theme 
is that of friendship. Recall that according to Christian faith, human salvation is accomplished by means of friendship. No longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. Says Jesus at the Last Supper, right after saying, Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. In this connection, consider the crucial role that friendship plays in the Lord of the Rings. The friendship among the hobbits. It would be well to trust rather to their friendship, says Gandalf to Elrond, of Merry and Pippin's desire to go on the quest just after the Council of Elrond. So you got the friendship among the hobbits. There's the friendship among the Fellowship of the Nine. The friendship between Gimli and Legolas. The friendship between Aragorn and Gandalf. And most especially, the friendship between Frodo and Sam. But the particular form of friendship that I'd like to focus on because it acts as a thread throughout the whole story is what St. Thomas Aquinas, following the biblical witness, especially of Genesis, calls highest friendship, Maxima amicitia, marriage. Tolkien has an extremely high estimation of marriage, an elevated view of marriage, one that is very strong in biblical resonance and deeply attractive for its power, romance, and beauty. Tolkien threads various marital relationships, either already married or clearly ordered to marriage, throughout the story. And in each instance, we are drawn to them for their beauty, their romantic quality, their power of complementarity, where husband and wife are clearly equal yet distinct. Tom Bombadil and Lady Goldberry. Recall that Tom calls Lady Goldberry his pretty lady. He dotes on her by picking lilies for her. He wakes her by singing under, under his window. And we're given a beautiful domestic image of the two of them preparing and serving supper for the hobbits as if, quote, weaving a single dance. What marriage can't relate to the experience of distinct roles working in harmony toward the common good of the family unit at mealtime? There is Lord Celeborn and Lady Galadriel of Lothlorien, Aragorn and Arwen. Recall that Aragorn and Arwen recapitulate the love of Baron and Luthien, who are themselves modeled after Tolkien and his wife, Edith. And they, that is Baron and Luthien, and Aragorn and Arwen, suffer through great trial and tribulation in the proving of their deep love. In private, Tolkien confirmed that the highest love story of the Lord of the Rings is, quote, that of Aragorn and Arwen, Elrond's daughter. And then there's Faramir and Eowyn. This love story, which is showcased near the end of the story, is a beautiful and tender one. With its multiple garden references, its nobility and near royalty of language and courtesy, its bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh-like longing in what Faramir expresses for Eowyn, and for the fact that they are both starting their lives anew, this tale offers clear echoes of our first parents, of prelapsarian Adam and Eve in the garden, presented as Lord and Lady, King and Queen of Eden. This is, in fact, true as well of Tom Bombadil and Lady Goldberry, of, Lady, of Lord Celeborn and Lady Galadriel, of Aragorn and Arwen, and likewise of Baron and Luthien. And let's not forget that the Lord of the Rings closes the, like the Bible does with the image of marriage and family. 
The wedding supper of the Lamb and the adorning of the heavenly Jerusalem as the bride of Christ, in the case of the Bible. The wedding of Aragorn and Arwen and Sam's returning home to Rosie and his family, in the case of the Lord of the Rings. The last words of the Lord of the Rings belong to Sam. I'm back. What is he back to? He's back to home. Home to his wife and his daughter. Some criticize Tolkien for putting marriage on a pedestal as a naive and romantic ideal that has little to do with the hard realities of married life. We might retort, is it Tolkien who puts marriage on an idealistic pedestal, or is it our culture dominated by what Pope Benedict XVI once called a new philosophy of sexuality that gets marriage so wrong and so badly? and so cheapens marriage and sells it short of the heights to which it can attain. Uh, Tolkien, we should point out, considered marriage as marking one of the devil's favorite targets. Catholic moral teaching basing itself on the biblical witness leaves little doubt. Marriage marks a bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh reality that God intends all married couples, along with the happiness and beauty that accompanies it, to experience. We would do well then to heed and seek to imbibe in our own marriages Tolkien's high estimation of the romantic beauty and nobility of marriage. A fourth structural theme would be one that we could term anti-Pelagianism. And by it, Tolkien shows that he is a true spiritual master, a master of the spiritual life. Pelagianism is the heresy that holds that we can overcome evil on our own. We can resist evil by our own willpower that we can be virtuous and holy by our own power and might, that we can save ourselves. Catholic doctrine considers this a heresy since our fallen condition means at bottom that we are in truth powerless over evil and sin, and that we stand in need of help to overcome sin, especially within ourselves. At the heart of this teaching is, of course, the doctrine of original sin, whereby it is understood that human nature is fundamentally disordered, out of whack, off kilter, that we are our own worst enemies, and that this is traceable to our first parents. Tolkien, for his part, was keenly attuned to this aspect of Catholic teaching, as it was deeply formative of his understanding of good and evil, of divine grace, free will, and the like. One finds a pronounced Augustinian anti-Pelagian strain in Tolkien's letters and that he continually lays stress on the fallen world in which we live. In one letter he writes, quote, The power of evil in the world is not finally resistible by incarnate creatures, however good. Not surprisingly, then, we find a pronounced anti-Pelagian spirit running throughout the Lord of the Rings, both in the inability of good incarnate creatures to resist evil on their own, and in the corresponding necessity of divine grace to conquer evil. Grace is that unmerited assistance given by God that breaks in when things look bleakest to dispel the power of darkness and evil. In this connection, Tolkien confirms in private correspondence that grace does indeed appear in mythological forms in The Lord of the Rings. One simple example of such a mythical form of grace, and which occurs early on in the story, I would say is when Frodo and the hobbits are imprisoned 
and caught hopelessly, these are the words in the text, by the Barrowites. Remember that? Like us who call upon God or the saints for help, Frodo has the presence of mind to call upon Tom Bombadil. The text then says this. There was a loud rumbling sound and as of stone rolling and falling. And suddenly light streamed in, real light, the plain light of day. St. Thomas Aquinas calls grace the lux anime, the light of the soul. Juxtapose the account of the resurrection in Matthew's gospel alongside this text to see its biblical resonance, which, you know, I mean, we're in the season of Easter. <laughs> we just got that account at uh, Easter Sunday a week ago. The representative mouthpiece for or the archetype of Pelagianism in the story I would suggest is Boromir, who not coincidentally is qualified as, quote, tall and proud when he's introduced into the story at the Council of Elrond. At the council, it is Boromir who says of the ring, Why should we not think that the great ring has come into our hands to serve us in this very hour of need? Wielding it, the free lords of the free may surely defeat the enemy. Let the ring be your weapon, if it has such power as you say. The Lord of the Rings makes little sense, of course, if the ring doesn't have much deeper significance whereby it represents evil and sin as disordered attachment to created goods, in this case, to power. Very early on, Gandalf observes how the ring takes possession of the one who has it, and he tells Bilbo that it has taken far too much hold on Boromir, which indeed is what happens to Frodo, as it had happened to Gollum. Hence the Pelagian folly of Boromir's desire to wield the ring to defeat the enemy, a folly that reaches its zenith in his final confrontation with Frodo. Boromir betrays a Pelagian-like pride when he says, We of Minas Tirith have been staunch through long years of trial, and we desire only strength to defend ourselves, strength in a just cause. It is mad not to use the ring, to use the power of the enemy against him. And we know what follows. So this anti-Pelagian undercurrent that runs throughout the story, it reaches its apogee in what I would call the great anti-Pelagian scene in all of Western literature. It's Frodo's inability to arrive at the crack of Mount Doom without external help, Sam's help, followed by his inability to cast the ring into the fire of Mount Doom and the ring's destruction via outside help. I do not choose now to do what I came to do, Frodo says at the very crack of Mount Doom. I will not do this deed. The ring is mine. Then, after the ring's destruction, Frodo says to Sam, Do you remember Gandalf's words? Even Gollum may have something yet to do. But for him, Sam... I could not have destroyed the ring. In addressing the Frodo fail in private correspondence, Tolkien writes, quote, It is possible for the good, even saintly, to be subjected to a power of evil, which is too great for them to overcome in themselves. And in support, he cites 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. 
And he expressly calls Gollum's intervention a grace. Gollum's betrayal was a grace, he writes, since it came at a precise juncture when the final evil deed was the most beneficial thing anyone could have done for Frodo, end quote. A fifth structural theme is that of gospel-like pity, mercy, forgiveness. In a letter, Tolkien confesses, the exercise of pity, mercy, and forgiveness of injury underpinned the logic of the story. A logic that was determined, and get this highly significant remark, by the, quote, writer of the story, capital W, capital S, by which I do not need myself, that one ever-present person, capital P, who is never absent and never named. Elsewhere, he confesses that while penning The Lord of the Rings, he felt, quote, throughout that I was not inventing, but reporting. Now, the model for the exercise of forgiveness is, of course, Jesus himself on the cross. Particularly when Tolkien observes, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Who embodies this pity, mercy, forgiveness? Bilbo, Gandalf, Sam, Frodo. Towards the beginning of The Lord of the Rings, in a conversation between Gandalf and Frodo, Frodo exclaims that it was, quote, a pity that Bilbo did not stab that vile creature, Gollum, when he had a chance. To this, Gandalf famously replies, pity? It was pity that stayed his hand. Pity and mercy. My heart tells me that Gollum has some part to play yet, for good or ill, before the end. And when that comes, the pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of many. Yours, not least. As we know, Frodo will eventually show the same pity toward Gollum. But before we get to Frodo, Sam will also show the same pity before Mount Doom, which is really more remarkable given Sam's suspicion of an hostility toward Gollum all throughout the story. So let's read the passage uh, concerning Sam. Sam's hand wavered. His mind was hot with wrath and the memory of evil. It would be just to slay this treacherous, murderous creature, just and many times deserved. And also it seemed the only safe thing to do. But deep in his heart, there was something that restrained him. He could not strike this thing, lying in the dust, forlorn, ruinous, utterly wretched. He himself, though only for a little while, had borne the ring. And now dimly he guessed the agony of Gollum's shriveled mind and body, enslaved to that ring, unable to find peace or relief ever in life again. Deep in his heart, what else could that be but pity, mercy, forgiveness? And it is difficult not to hear echoing in Sam's having experienced the agony that comes with bearing the ring, this well-known passage from the letter to the Hebrews. For we have not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sinning. Then, of course, there is 
Frodo's Christ-like forgiveness of Gollum. Recall the key line uttered by Frodo to Sam at Mount, as Mount Doom is exploding. But for Gollum, Sam, I could not have destroyed the ring. The quest would have been in vain, even at the bitter end. So let us forgive him. So let us forgive him. It is because Frodo forgives Gollum that Frodo is, quote, extravagantly generous toward Gollum, to use Tolkien's words, that Middle-earth can be saved. A sixth and last structural theme that I'll mention, and perhaps the most important since the whole story turns on it, is the Pauline notion of folly, the folly of the cross made famous in 1 Corinthians, where Paul, St. Paul writes this. You have the text there. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it pleased God, through the folly of what we preach, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. As St. Paul sees it, the cross concerns a folly of salvation accomplished, not simply in a completely unforeseen manner, but in a manner that smacks against human wisdom, a manner that, at least at first sight, strikes one as foolish. After all, holding up a dead man on a cross as our Savior seems like pure folly, like pure nonsense. Death by crucifixion marks a cursed death according to Jewish law and a heinous, torturous, penal death of the most gruesome sort according to Roman law. It is the ultimate sign of human weakness, of human limitation, of the human inability to overcome his worst enemy, death, and to be our own savior. And therein lies the key, according to St. Paul, since if we're saved through a death by crucifixion, it can only be by God's power and might, not our own. Thus, St. Paul recognizes a higher wisdom at work in Christ's death, a divine wisdom, even if on a purely human level, it seems like folly. So as for the Lord of the Rings... The very quest to destroy the ring is modeled on this Pauline notion of folly. We know this because the very language used by Gandalf in pitching the idea of the quest at the Council of Elrond is as if straight out of 1 Corinthians. And it's striking when juxtaposed alongside that 1 Corinthians passage. It is wisdom to recognize a necessity, Gandalf insists, when all other courses have been weighed, though as folly it may appear to those who cling to false hope. Well, let folly be our cloak, a veil before the eyes of the enemy. Gandalf repeats this language in two towers after he has reappeared to Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli in Fangorn Forest. Sauron supposes that we, the fellowship, were all going to Minas Tirith, for that is what he himself would have done in our place. And according to his wisdom, it would have been a heavy stroke against his power. That we, should that we should try to destroy the ring itself has not yet entered into his darkest dream. Wise, 
fool. Wise fool, it's a brilliant Pauline play in words. The word folly recurs again several times in the remainder of the story, always with a Pauline ring, most notably in Gandalf's contest with Lord Denethor. Lord Denethor keeps calling him a fool, the gray fool, the old fool, which he is in this Pauline sense. And then near the end, when Gandalf counsels a final assault on the Black Gates to draw Sauron's attention away from Mount Doom. Here Gandalf says in the midst of making this pitch, Sauron's eye is now straining towards us, blind almost to all else that is moving. So we must keep it. We have not the ring. In wisdom or great folly, it has been sent away to be destroyed, lest it destroy us. Without it, we cannot by force defeat his force. But we must at all costs keep his eye from his true peril. We cannot achieve victory by arms, but by, but by arms we can give the ring bearer his only chance, frail though it be. Okay, that's what I have. I've barely scratched the surface. For instance, I've not even mentioned how Gandalf is a Christ the prophet-like character, one who speaks with a higher knowledge and higher wisdom. How Frodo is a Christ the priest type figure, the one who shoulders the cross and who offers himself up for the salvation of Middle-earth. Or how Aragorn is a Christ the king type figure, the king who has a first coming in obscurity, simplicity, humility, poverty, and a second coming in glory and majesty amidst great fanfare. But I, I hope to have signaled for at least a little bit what Tolkien might have meant what he, when he called the Lord of the Rings a fundamentally Catholic work. Thank you. Okay, I'm happy to entertain questions. Favorite character. What's that? Favorite character. Ah, favorite mine. Character. Okay. <laughs> Who's yours? Aragorn was the reason why I got into the show to start with. So he's a Aragorn's mine. Yeah. So I mean, well, I of course, you know, I read the Lord of the Rings way before the movies came out, but right, even when he's introduced in. The end of the prancing pony and Bree. He's the shady character in the corner. Even like I was like, there's something cool about this guy. I like this guy. So, yeah, yeah, Aragorn for me. <laughs> What's that? Do you have any comments on Rings of Power? Oh, for the record. Oh, for the record. Uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> um, nice visuals. Yeah. Terrible story. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it's first of all they didn't. Problem. They had rights only to the uh, appendices, not to the Silmarillion. All right, so the fuller story is in the Silmarillion. You just get, you know, you get an outline in the, in the appendices. But, um, yeah, I mean, uh, Galad Lady Galadriel, she's <laughs> have, you, have you seen them? Yeah, yeah, I just thought it would be a fun question to ask. I, should, I don't even like her. I, you know, I don't even find her likable. So, I, you know, yeah, I, I, I suffered through it. I, I mean, the visuals, the special effects are really well done. So well, I powered through it. Lava. Cool. Yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, let me just say that, um, I mean, Tolkien is a masterful storyteller to begin with. You know, it's going to be hard to compete with that. but. Come on, I mean, you know, can, we, can we at least try a little bit better than that? Yeah. And 
Uh, of course, now there was announced, what, a couple weeks ago that um, there will be that, uh, who is it, um, Amazon is going to be doing some Lord of the Rings. Peter Jackson has signed on to that. Or is it New Line Cinema? What's that? Oh, I don't know. It's yeah, so Why? Peter Jackson has signed on to, to some movie project. Um, we'll see. You've got, I mean, the Silmarillion, you've got a lot of little, little stories within. And it's not a continuous narrative. But, I mean, each one of those little stories could be a whole movie. You know, the movies, putting, putting the Lord of the Rings on big screen, it comes with challenges. One, it's just time alone. You know, like, for instance, Gandalf's speech at the Council of Elrond, if you just listen to that on, on like, audiobook, it goes for 45 minutes. <laughs> Gandalf's speech alone at the Council of Elrond goes for 45 minutes. So they're going to have to do a lot of adapting. And the big screen is its own art form. But, you know, then there are structural changes that they made, which one can, you know, take issue with. Farmir being an obvious example, you know. But then they make, you know, the Shelob's lair. Now, of course, in the book, what, what we have described is, is pure blackness, a blackness that, that sucks light up. Well, you can't show that. <laughs> That's not going to be very interesting on the big screen. But, but they, kinda, they made it kind of ridiculous at the same time with how Sam, remember when Sam has Sam fight Shelob and he kind of kicks her with his feet? And, you know, okay, yeah, come on. <laughs> Can we do better than that? You know, you're going to change the story, and this is what you're going to give us as, a, as an alternative? I'm a general fan of the Peter Jackson movies, so when, when, I, when I do the Tolkien course, we actually watch each movie just when we finish each book, which is great because then you, we pick, you pick up on all the changes because we've just gone through the book. Why is there no Tolkien course here? What's that? Why is there no Tolkien course here? Say again? Ralph Bakshi or Rankin Bass for uh, the animated subjects for him. Oh my god, I forgot about those. Uh, the Ralph Bakshi movie or the Rankin Bass movie? Oh. <laughs> you ever seen them? Uh, no, I've never seen them. I watched those on repeat when I was like eight years old. Yes, Anthony? Crazy. Um, okay, so in the movies, the, the battles are. The battle scenes are absolutely epic. Yeah, uh, they are, yeah. In the books, are, is there some greater literary role that they're playing? That they... Oh, sure. I mean, you pick up on all the things in the, in the book. For instance, I mean, the movie does marvelously. The riders, the, the, the ride of the Rohirrim and their arrival at the Battle of the Pelennor Fields and the blow, blowing of the horns. I mean, that's, that's epic. But, you know, in the book... Okay, it comes right when the showdown between the Witch King and Gandalf, where, what does the Witch King call Gandalf? Old fool. It's again that great Pauline use of, of language there, old fool. This is my hour. Okay, so we can, can, can you not see the devil saying the same thing to Christ on the cross? You old, you fool, this is my hour. Yet, what's, it's not his hour. It's, in fact, Christ's hour. And what signals it? What signals the darkness of the hour, but also the fact that it's Good Friday, is the cock that crows when Peter has denied Christ a third time. 
And what happens before the, the horns of Rohan sound? What is the first note that is sounded? A cock crows. In the book, right? So you read the book. So he says this. The witch king says, um, Old fool, this is my hour. Do you not know death when you see it? And then one hears a cock crowing. You can't, you can't read a passage like that, of course, not think of Peter and denial of Christ and the dark hour and Jesus' own passion. And yet, just when things are darkest is when things are going to turn completely on their head. Okay, and then the, the text says, you know, so the text says the cock, what's the cock doing? Announcing the dawn of the day. Okay, and then, as if in answer, that's what the text says, as if in answer, the horns of Rohan sound. Okay, so, um, and then uh, when you get to the riders of Rohan, of course, when they are aligned for battle and before the horns sound, what the text says is the wind has changed. And they see the clouds starting to break. They see that the sun is starting to rise. So light shines through. So there's a, there's a very, very intentional use of imagery of light and dark. Very Johannine-like, you know, very close to John's gospel. Okay, so this is all the stuff, all the little things you really pick up on. You know, even if, even if it's done, you know, marvelously, especially the, I mean, that's, that's my favorite moment in all the movies is the, is the, uh, uh, the blowing of the horns. By the way, you know what the text says about the blowing of the horns? That Theoden is the first one to blow it, and he blows so hard that it bursts. <laughs> it's almost comical when you think, like, you know, how hard did he have to blow that horn to make it blast apart? You know? Which battle was that? What's that? Which battle was that? This is the battle of the Pelennor Fields when the when uh, when the riders of Rohan arrive, you know, uh, at uh, to, uh, right at the at the last moment possible before Ministeria. Uh, oh yeah. So so although Tolkien despised allegory, do you think that he do you know what specific battles he might have incorporated into like Helmsdale if there were any historical references? He's been, um, a lot of people have suggested World War II parallels, but he he disavowed that expressly. Anything so, um, now that doesn't mean, at the same time, okay, a couple things to say. At the same time, that doesn't mean that World War, his own experience in World War I and World War II wouldn't have shaped his imaginative conception of war and would have influenced him in that way. All right, that's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is one can, I, I think it's putting it too strongly to say he despises allegory. He distrusts it. But even Tolkien uses allegory. It's, it's what it is, is, is what he doesn't like is he doesn't like the author imposing the strict meaning of the story on its readers. He wants the readers to have the freedom to apply. Application is it's allegory. I mean, it's, it's, it's how this is representative in some symbolic sense of, of this something else. But what that, that's different than the author intending that, per se. But he wants the reader to have the freedom to say, yeah, you know, that, that. So if a reader comes along and says, you know, um, let's say uh, the, the Battle of the Marne of World War I, you know, Battle in the Trenches, 
that's um, uh, that can be likened to um, to Helm's Deep, you know, the Battle of the Hornburg. It's raining, you know, the mud and all that. Uh, I, you know, I don't think he'd have an issue with that, but but he did he did uh, he did expressly say no. I did not have consciously in mind, you know, say um, any any particular battle, whether from World War One or World War World War Two or Nazism or whatever. Well, uh, I think that's just about all we have time for. Um, we we may have a couple of uh, minutes left if uh, if someone wants to uh, uh, come forward and uh, talk one on one, but. Uh, Please uh, join me all in uh, thanking Professor Gondra. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.